you notice we've been in the Gospel of John the last couple of weeks during Passion Sunday, last Sunday, and this morning because John has such a high Christology. He focuses on the deity of Christ, and that's why uh, about a month or so ago I, I chose to use the Gospel of John to get us uh, through Easter the last couple of weeks, the Passion Sunday, and then this morning. So we now find ourselves in John chapter 20. Actually, what we're going to start next week is we're going to work our way through the Gospel of John. So next week, we're going to start with John chapter 1-1 and work our way through the Gospel. And just so you know, one of the reasons I picked the Gospel of John, particularly because of chapters 13 through 17, all that teaching with Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And uh, it's, just, it's just core. It's just very fundamental to our faith and about what it means to follow Christ. And so I want you to know that as well. Not to mention the very last two verses of chapter 20, if you want to look there real quick. And then we will read our passage. Here's the reason why John wrote this gospel. Therefore, many other signs. I'm in verse 30 of chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, continually believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, according to John, true saving faith was a persevering faith. It continued on. It never gave up. Oh, it might go through doubts now and then. It might go through anxiety. It might go through hurt and pain. But you never, ever totally take your eyes off of Christ. Amen? Why? Because he's the risen Savior. So let's stand together and read chapter 20, verses 1 through. It's a long section, 17. It is the resurrection story, the empty tomb it begins with. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. The study that shows us it's John himself. And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. And they were going to, in other words, they took off running. Verse 3. Verse 4, the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking, looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one on the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of the literal historical resurrection of Christ. It's true, it's genuine, it actually happened. Hadn't happened before, haven't, hasn't happened since. That's because Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah. He is the Son of God, he is truly God, and he's our Savior. And he's coming again. And so, Father, on this morning, help us once again as we dive into the resurrection story to pull out some nuggets of gold, of truth, that will encourage us in our walk with you, that will strengthen our faith once again, that will help us in following Jesus, and we would stand fast all the more in him and on him. Father, bless our congregation. Knit, mold, shape us together with these truths, not just as individuals, but as a body of believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ separates, or the resurrection separates Christ and therefore his church from all other religions, right? And this is kind of a no-brainer of a statement, isn't it? It's kind of like, okay, yeah, now what? <laughs> I mean, everybody knows that. Even non-Christians would agree that that is something that separates Christianity from all other religions. But this morning, I want to bring up to the forefront, three things concerning the resurrection. Number one, it's historical. And then number two, it's personal. And then number three, it's global. Those are the three points this morning. That it's historical or very literal. I want to show you that in this text. Number two, you're going to see it's very personal. Something that was done so pop, something incredible, so, so globally reaching, could be something so personal to an individual. And then finally, it's global. It's global generational as well as geographical. And therefore, it still has its powerful effect today. That's why we exist, as Ron said earlier. If it wasn't for the resurrection, there would be no church. If it wasn't for the resurrection, there'd be no salvation. Without the resurrection, there'd be no forgiveness of sins. So let's look at number one. The resurrection is historical. What I mean by that, it's literal. Because of the empty tomb, the clothing, and number three, all the appearances. We know that literally it happened, that it's an historical event. Let's look at the empty tomb. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Mark chapter 16, verses 3 and 4 say that it had been closed by a large stone or boulder or rock. Matthew adds that it had been sealed. Let me read this portion of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. This is after the crucifixion. They buried him. They get together. They have a concern on their minds. Here's what it is. And they said, verse 63, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that is, Jesus was still alive, that deceiver, see, they got, they're saying this with attitude, okay? That deceiver, Christ, 
said, after three days, I'm going to rise again. Verse 64, therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, see, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. There's also historically recorded that it was possible that there was already a law in place that because tombs had been robbed, that Pilate had already had something in place. But in this instance, he said, this is your problem. He still had that attitude. <laughs> you know, this Jesus is a religious issue. You know, we crucified him. But if you want to make sure he's secure, you do that on your own. But there was a problem existing then of robbing tombs. So we see why Mary came shocked, dismayed, really surprised and amazed. And that's why she saw a stone already. T- so she ran, verse 2 and came to Simon Peter and to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And notice the, the, the uh, pronoun we, and we do not know. She was with other women. The women, she, she wasn't just her, but, but there was other women with her, and they saw this. It was empty. The stone rolled away. They ran head tail to Peter and John to be expected, kind of like the, the leaders of the, the core group of disciples. But they were amazed that this had taken place. It's either by the authorities or robbers. It was not that uncommon for even the emperor himself prescribed punishment for those who would, 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 would rob tombs. Oh, I love this because it's Mary Magdalene. You know who she is, don't you? Jesus delivered seven demons out of her. And she's there at the cross, and now she's there at the grave. Isn't that sweet? This sweetness is going to unfold in just a few minutes. But let's keep on going. First of all, the empty tomb shows this is a literal historical event. But look also at verses 3 through 9, the linen. Peter and the other disciple, they run for I like the competition here. Two guys, right? Peter and John running. Well, John humbly says, I beat him. <laughs> so, so, so he's looking in the tomb, right? And he's kind of looking at a distance. And Peter just shoots right by, just goes into the tomb. Okay, but notice what they find, because that's really what's important here. Verse 5, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So I wonder if there was something about the linen wrappings that caused him to just pause right there at the entrance. Verse 6, it says, Simon Peter also came following him. He entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. That's odd if there was robbers in there. Robbers don't act that way. Robbers are in and out quick because they don't want to get caught. They're not going to sit there and fold something up. And, and to John, he's kind of like, wait a minute. This is very peculiar. The position of the grave clothes was particularly important and significant. It demonstrated that the scene was very orderly and calm. There was no sign of struggle, no sign of disturbance or violence or foul play. You know, if you're a robber, you're going in there, you're grabbing the body and you're hightailing it. You're not going to unwrap everything and make it look nice in there. You're in and out. That's what robbers do. 
The Greek word fold up or rolled up can translate can be translated twirled. So 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 the linen wrappings around him were still wrapped, but had just kind of like had no body in them anymore, as if Jesus just left. Kind of like verse, I think it's 19, how he entered into that room. So when it was evening on the day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. He just walked into the room. He just came into the room. Now he's in a resurrected body. So those linen wrappings had just gently fluffed. There was no body in them, but they were just still wrapped up like that. And then the head wrapping was off to the side, folded up. Odd, isn't it? It shows the, the literalness of the resurrection. That there was no robber there to, or robbers there to steal the body as the Jews and the Greeks. Everybody would, be, would love to believe. They were undisturbed linens as if he just passed through them much in the same way as his entrance into the, into the locked room in verse 19. Now, according to verse 8, this evidence... Caused John to believe. Look at verse 8 as John's little short testimony. As if John's saying, at that moment it began to click. At that moment it began to click. When I saw the evidence, when I saw how peaceful the environment was, everything was orderly and calm, when I saw the linens there, when I saw the face cloths there and how they were lying there, there was something uncanny about them. There's no way robbers came in here and took his body as Mary came and told us that she most likely thought it happened that way, he, he looked in and he goes, no, that's different. And it clicked. Verse 8, so the other disciple, John referring to himself, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and what? Believed. Now notice his statement, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture. I think at that moment, John is connecting Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah with what he saw in that tomb in the linens lying there. But the other disciples, it hadn't yet clicked. We're going to see it click with them in verses 19 when he appears to them. But John is injecting here in verse 8 and 9. Here, here's my short little testimony. It's at that moment things began to click. I began to believe and understand that he is the Messiah. There was also many appearances. First, the empty tomb, his historical evidence, the linens lying there in a certain way as historical evidence that John refers to here, that John himself, John himself saw. And now we have many appearances. Let me begin by quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 9 from the Apostle Paul. He says this, and he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Even Paul recognizes that everything must be according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And what, what Paul's giving here is not an exhaustive list of appearances, but a general list of appearances. And at one appearance, it was the 500 people at one time. Wow. And some of those have fallen asleep, but many remain. They're still alive, in other words. Of those 500, a lot of them are still alive and are witnesses. And they appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. So Paul refers to a bunch of appearances 
But now John writes this appearance in verse 19 and 22 to the disciples. I'm intentionally skipping Mary's, his appearance to Mary, because that's special. So what do you have here in verse 19 and 20 are men afraid. Men who are simply afraid. Afraid for their lives, afraid to be identified with Jesus, afraid that they might the next day be arrested or they might be ridiculed. As Peter has also demonstrated, it wasn't easy. He denied the Lord, what? Three times. Because people recognized him and associated him with Jesus and they had the same fear still. And so they're in this room hiding and huddling together. So when it was evening, verse 19, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, their disciples were, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews. In other words, for this reason they were there, for the fear of the Jews. is why they were huddled together in that room. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. In the Old Testament, it's shalom. But because of Christ's resurrection, this peace took on a whole new meaning. Peace be with God. You're justified. You're forgiven. This peace is now based upon my resurrection. So when Jesus looks at his disciples in that room and says, peace be unto you, he's saying, I am your peace with God. Kind of makes sense out of John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. No one can have peace with God apart from Christ. It's in Christ alone that we have peace with God. Verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord from fear to joy, from fear to joy. So we see the resurrection is literal. It is historical because of an empty tomb, the linens lying there in a certain way, and Christ's many appearances to many people, his disciples, and at one time to at least 500 folks, not to mention other appearances. Number two, the resurrection is very personal. And I think this is something we lose when we talk about the historicity or the, the literalness of the, of the resurrection. It was a historical event. Yes, it was. Not only was it historical, but it's very personal. In other words, what I'm saying by that is he meets people right where they are at. Even in his resurrected body, King of kings and Lord of lords, in his fullness, having dealt with sin, having conquered death, Jesus is still meeting people right where they are at. It's not just something he did before the resurrection. He's still doing it after the resurrection. In his fullness of his glory, he's still meeting you and I right where we're at. And this is right here in the gospel. That's why the scene shifts back to Mary in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Peter and John have gone back. She's there back again the second time. After reporting it to them, she comes back. She couldn't quite run as fast as them. I'm sure she's kind of like behind them. They saw and took off. She's standing there now at the tomb. So here's, here is Mary in her grief. In her grief. Jesus is meeting her in her grief. He will meet Peter in his arrogance and his overconfidence. He will meet Thomas with all of his doubting. But here he meets Mary in her grief. This is the beauty of the resurrection. This is, 
it's, it's not just something powerful, but it's very graceful. Resurrection is full of grace. She's struggling. She finds herself back at the tomb, and she's crying. She's crying. Verse 11, and she wept. She stooped. She's still confused. She's still thinking, who took his body? She hadn't put it together yet. So she's doubting. But you know how wonderful God is? He's going to help her put it together. Today, God has given us his word, which puts it together for us. But here we see Jesus personally putting it together for Mary. Verse 13, just seeing the two angels, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, here's why, because they have taken away my Lord. They've stolen him. They've robbed him. They've taken his body. I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, verse 14, she turned around. I don't know if she got startled or heard a footstep or something, but she turned around and recognized, well, she, she, this person, to her it was a person, but we know, John tells us it was Jesus. At first, she did not recognize him because she's still thinking the impossibility of a resurrection. It doesn't compute. Beloved, today, if someone rose from the dead, we would not believe unless we saw it ourselves, would we? Right? Be honest. Correct. Don't worry. Won't happen, okay? This is how I know. Right? Right? Okay. It's so beautiful, though. He's so tender and gentle with her. So to, to meet somebody where they're at is to sympathize with them. It's to come down to their level or even to go a little bit underneath their level. Not that they're at a low level, but to help them to understand and to bring them up. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing with Mary here. And notice it's his first appearance as a woman. I don't know about today, but I know back then as you read, women were treated much more lowly. They were second-class citizens. At times, some people treated them as property. This is beautiful. Jesus is not treating her as property. Let's keep going. Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and John says, and did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Now, she thought he was a gardener. She said to him, sir, if you, maybe he did it. Okay, that's what she's thinking. Maybe you took the body. If you took the body, you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. I'll get him back. I'll do what needs to be done with him. And notice verse 16. Here's the moment. Mary. He must have said it in such a way that just woke her up. But you know what's so precious about this? This is the good shepherd at work. Listen to chapter 10 earlier on in the Gospel of John. Speaking of the good shepherd, Jesus says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. At this very moment, Jesus calls one of his sheep, Mary. And she believes. She comes. She trusts. Have you heard the voice of God 
through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God through the gospel itself this morning? Can you say that there's a time in your life, doesn't have to be a minute or a second, maybe it was days, weeks, or months where God was dealing with you and sort of dragging you and calling you to salvation, calling you to trust Him, to follow Him, to be a disciple, and finally you were broken over your own sinfulness. Your eyes were open to your humanity and your sinfulness. Your eyes were open to the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of Christ, and you saw all your works as filthy rags, and you came and ran to the savior because you knew you needed his forgiveness and his righteousness to stand before a holy god if you lack that in your life i will be bold enough to say i don't think you know christ as your savior my prayer is that all of us have come to that moment where we have repented of our sins that doesn't mean we become sinless But we now look upon our sins the way God looks at our sins. I don't like them anymore. I want to change. I want to follow Christ. I trust when I die, I'm going to trust in his life, in his work, in his resurrection, his blood, in his righteousness. When I go before the Father, the Father would ask me, why should I let you into my kingdom? All I'm going to do is point to Jesus. It's because of him. It's all of him. Does your life reflect that today? Oh, isn't that beautiful story? I love the story of Mary. I mean, she's heartbroken. She's full of agony and pain, watching him be, watching him be tortured and crucified. And now this final indignity, this body is taken, is lost, as far as she knows, nowhere to be found. Where in the world is it? And from her perspective, she's crying. But beloved, let me share with you one more thing before we go to the next story. And that is, from the perspective of heaven, nothing is more inconsistent, nothing is more inappropriate than tears at an empty tomb. It's rejoicing. And so she turns. She sees Jesus. And she now her eyes are open. Once he said, Mary, the, the shepherd of her soul, called her name, and she heard the great shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep, and she responds. And look what she does in verse 17. She can't stop clinging to him. You see, beloved, once you come to Christ, you can't stop clinging to him. You don't lose your salvation. Oh, we might walk away for a season. We have our issues. We have our problems. We're sinners. But we never totally walk away. We always want to cling because we always know he is the only answer. I love verse 17. Let's not, let's not belittle this. It seems a little harsh where he says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. There's a lesson to be learned in verse 17. So it's really not, it's not harsh, but there's a point to it. Mary, now so full of joy, just can't stop clinging to him. But Christ does tell her to stop. Why? Because he has not yet ascended to the Father. That won't happen until Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, 10, and 11. 
And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's coming again, but meanwhile, he's gone. So what's the point? Jesus is preparing her. Jesus is preparing them for his ascension, that he's going to go. There's still a number of appearances yet to happen when he makes this statement to Mary. The disciples are coming up next. Then Thomas and others Paul mentions. But Jesus is reminding us, and he's teaching us this one important principle. He's saying this, the relationship with me shall one day be by faith and not by sight. And that day will be when I ascend into heaven. From that point on, it's going to be by faith and not by sight. Isn't that precious? Let's go on to another one, Thomas. Thomas is coming up in chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. Look at 24 and 25. But Thomas Another personal appearance just for him. One of the 12 called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came in verse 19 and 20. So the other disciples were saying to him, were telling him, hey, we've seen him. We've touched him. We've seen him. He came to us. But Thomas wouldn't have nothing to do with it. And I love the Greek in such a way that they were telling him over and over again, oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. you should have been there. You should have been there. You should over and over and over again. They were telling him, but he would have nothing to do with it. He was so skeptical. How many of us are very skeptical? Now, though he remained unconvinced, he wasn't the only one. I love what Mark writes about the disciples when they're in the upper room. He tells us that they also were doubting. You see, Mary went to them and told them, and they didn't believe her word. The two men on the road to Emmaus went to the disciples, and they didn't believe their word either. So let's not just, what I don't want to do is just kind of, here's Thomas all by himself with doubt. They all had that at one time or another just like us. You see, you know what I love about this? It's so raw with humanity. These are ordinary people. These are not kings and princesses and super spiritual people. These are fishermen. This is Mary Magdalene that's possessed by seven demons. These are just people with normal struggles, anxiety, weeping, doubt, scared, fear, just like you and me. And so here is the resurrected Savior being very personable with them, meeting them, each one of them, right where they are at. I love this. Eight days passed, verse 26. The disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them at this time. They're all together now. And Jesus just walks in. Again, the doors were shut, verse 26, and he stood in their midst, just like verse 19, and he says the same thing, peace be with you. And notice what he does next. He just zones in on Thomas, because he knows Thomas wasn't there the first time. He knows Thomas is doubting. He knows Thomas's reaction to their witness, right? And, and their witness to Mary, their witness to the men on the road to Emmaus, you know. It, here's what's going on. Nothing but this. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. 
That's all it is. You can sum up this whole section with just those words. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands, Thomas? Reach your hand and put it to my side. You you feel the hole there where I was pierced, that sword that went through me? You feeling it there? Go ahead, put it in a little bit. Maybe it goes in an inch or two. But remember the historicity of this. It's a real body he's talking about. And, And he says this. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Notice the first fruit of belief in verse 28. My Lord and my God. You're resurrected. Therefore, you do have the authority to forgive. You are God. You're who I need. Isn't that beautiful? My Lord and my God. And Jesus makes this statement in verse 29. I think when Jesus is interacting with his disciples, there's these little nuggets of gold for the church, for us down the road. And he says this, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed us. Amen. And then there's Peter. Another personal appearance is with Peter. I picked him out. He's a little bit later on in chapter 21 when he's restored. But I just, I just love Peter. A man who was at one time brimming with confidence, overconfidence. Brimming with his own ability to follow Christ is all shattered. He'd been humbled in his own sinful condition. And yet Christ in chapter 21, 15 through 17, restores him and talks to him about ministering in his name. So, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, I love these little sidebar conversations, these very personal conversations. The rest of the disciples are around, but he's just like, Peter, come here. Let me talk to you for a minute. This is me and you one-on-one. Simon Son of John, do you love me more than these? Maybe the fish, right? Because Peter went back to fishing. But God called him to fish for men, not for the fish out of the lake. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And tend to my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved as if Jesus wasn't listening to him. But remember, Jesus often uses repetition to drive a point home, doesn't he? Repetition, driving the point home. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. In other words, Peter, I got a new occupation for you. You're now going to live for me, not for yourself. So the resurrection is not just historical and literal. It's very personal. Finally, it is very global. The resurrection is global because it changes people's lives. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has what? Sent me, I also send 
you. The gospel is global. The resurrection is a global resurrection. The resurrection is literal and historical and actually happened. It's very personable and very personal, and now it is very global. It goes from generation to generation to generation. It is generational, yet it is also geographical because people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation will be saved. This is the power of the resurrection. It's a beautiful story. He now sends his disciples to preach and teach about the risen Savior and for them to go make disciples. And notice what he says here. Receive the Holy Spirit, verse 22 and 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Do not get confused over this. It simply means this. If one believes, then a Christian has a right to announce his forgiveness. But one who refuses to believe has the right to announce that they are not forgiven. That's all that simply means. We say we're forgiven because we trust in Christ, right? But we see people out there in the world that don't follow Christ. We know that they are not forgiven. And I love this little part, receive the Holy Spirit. He, 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 he breathed, verse 22, he breathed on them. It's, kind of, it's reminiscent of, of when God breathed in the nostrils of Adam and created life. Now Jesus is giving them new life. They're new creatures in Christ. Because God breathes new life into us. With the breath of the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? So beloved. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in the historical resurrection of Christ? Do you have. Can you say that you have a personal relationship with Christ? Not merely believe as I believe in facts. I understand what the Bible says, and it's nice. I believe I'm a sinner, and Jesus is a Savior, and yeah, that's all good and well. I believe in those facts. I accept the Bible as being true. That's not how John means belief. It's not merely believe in that sense or that way, or you acknowledge something, but rather believe to the point of you will actually follow him. That's from here to here. This is, many people have defined belief as just having these facts in your head. But the way John defines belief is it's in your heart, and you will trust him to the point of actually following him. That's why Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, Jesus says. You'll begin to live a life of self-denial. You will say no to even good things now and then because if it means the progress of Christ, if it means furthering him and exalting him. In other words, true saving faith is characterized by self-denial and sacrifice and even suffering for him. That's why he says take up his cross daily. True saving faith does not wait to show itself. True saving faith cannot wait to show itself. Does that make sense? It wants to tell others. It can't help but tell others because it's so in love with Christ. And so 
It's more than a mere mental awareness or having a deepening knowledge. It's a union. It's a deepening dependence and it's a commitment, a reliance, a trust. Here it is. It is actually the swallowing of pride and running to Christ because you know without a shadow of a doubt that he will forgive you because you know there is no maze of sin, no maze or amount of hurt or trouble or pride so deep that Christ cannot rescue and deliver you from it. And so you throw all your weight on him, all your trust on him. Beloved, that is the power of the resurrection. That's why Jesus rose from the grave, that you would believe, keep on believing no matter what. Amen? So if you're going through a time of tears and sadness like Mary, maybe you're going through a bout of overconfidence and pride like Peter, or you're just simply doubting like Thomas, run to the Savior. Run to the foot of the cross. Run to the tomb and find that stone rolled away and that it's empty. Go to the only one who can save your soul. Go to Jesus himself. God bless you. That's the grace of God in a nutshell.